Hello and welcome to the Pioneers Post podcast, social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. Celebrating each other's successes is all well and good, but do awards and recognitions within social enterprise have the potential to isolate those who are not on the lists? And can feeling special be a barrier to creating wider change? These are the types of questions that come up when you take some of the UK's leading women in social enterprise and get them together around a dinner table. This is exactly what we have done for our Wise Conversation series, created in partnership with NatWest. This time the dinner took place in London, and the Finance Innovation Lab's Executive Director, Anna Laycock, kicked off the discussions. Well, hi everyone, um, and thank you, I think, for asking me to speak. Um, not 100%. I said yes before I really knew what I was saying yes to, which is typical of me. Um, so as I've said, I lead an organisation called the Finance Innovation Lab. Um, so we work in one of the most power-laden sectors, really, finance. Um, and, um, and we also work on um, a very systemic approach. So we, we look at finance as a complex system. Um, rather than particularly focusing on individuals within that system. And so I guess a lot of what I'm going to say is actually drawn on that and particularly on just sort of what power means to me. Um, so what I'm going to offer you is three question stroke challenges, um, not because I think I have the answer to them or because the lab is amazing in, in these respects. The, the lab is amazing in many respects, but... Um, and I was, I was tasked with being provocative, so I'm going to try to be provocative. I may not be right or useful, um, but I will be provocative. Um, so I got on two lists last year. It was this list, the WISE 100, which I was really excited about, and um, the FinTech Power List um, for women. So basically women who were leading in the FinTech industry. I, was, I may be the only person who was on both lists, and it was very exciting. And one of the things I noticed happened as a result of it was I got loads of LinkedIn requests from people I'd never met and loads of unsolicited emails. Um, my favorite one of which, which I think was computer generated, but I'm not sure, was uh, purported to be from Ariana Grande and was asking me to invest in something that Elon Musk had sponsored. Um, which was, and I guess what, what this brought home to me was what visibility means really, that actually once you become visible, lots of things come your way. Um, and that, so that was kind of the, the theme that I wanted to work on today, what it means to be visible. And certainly it does bring lots of opportunities. And I think in the social enterprise world and in the finance world, being visible, knowing people, having the language, having a profile does bring a huge amount of opportunities. It's the way we get things done. Um, and the more opportunities you get, the more visible you get. And the more visible you get, the more opportunities you get. And it's kind of a reinforcing feedback loop, which is great on the one hand. Um, but what I've become increasingly conscious of, and, and it's the same here tonight, is that because that feedback loop just reinforces and reinforces, I'm taking space from other people, actually, from people who are less visible or who maybe don't necessarily fit society's rules about what women in social enterprise should look like, um, or just who aren't in the loop, who just don't necessarily have the contacts or the language or the time to be in the loop. Um, 
And I guess what that's really brought home to me is that actually, while all these opportunities are an absolute gift, they come with a responsibility as well, that it's not actually just enough to be a woman in this space. Actually, I think once you get visibility and recognition, that imposes kind of a responsibility on us to try to facilitate that for other women who haven't actually had that happen, to make space and shine a light on those who are currently invisible, and I know there's a lot of them, and I know for every one of us sat around the table, there could be 10 or maybe 100 women who are doing amazing things for social good, who aren't here, and whose struggles we probably don't share, but actually we need to honor what they're doing through their struggles. And I guess as a little practical example of how I'm trying to do that at the lab, and I use this example with caution because it's not a complete example. We used to say we appointed on merits alone, and then the more we talked about it, the more we realized that merit wasn't really a very neutral concept because when you're looking at things like educational attainment or the amount of experience you've got, yes, it reflects on one's talent um, and their capacities, but it also reflects the opportunities that they've been given in life and also the expectations that have been given them at, at, from life onwards. And so now we're starting to talk about actually assessing on potential rather than merit. Now, I say I'm cautious about this because we haven't really worked out exactly how we do that. We're still trying to work out by trial and error how we do that in our, in our recruitment processes. But I guess the question it raises for me, this whole thing raises for me, and the first question is what can, given that we have the privilege of being around this table tonight, what can we do to support other women into this space so that actually this time next year, if there's, a, if there's a table like this, we've been pushed off it by someone else. Because I think if we're the people who are around the table every year, then actually something's not right. Um, and that kind of leads me on from visibility to invisibility. Um, and I think when we're looking at the sort of invisible barriers, we really need to understand what we mean by that. Some of them are literally invisible. There are barriers to what we term success that you can't see, but some of them are invisible because we don't talk about them actually, because they're deemed embarrassing uh, or weak. And so I'm gonna give some examples from my own experience, which just for clarity, I'm happy to have on the podcast. I don't, I don't hide these things. Um, that I actually think is important for people to share. So I'm type two bipolar. That's the one that's mainly depressive. I don't generally dance on tables naked, although I can't guarantee it. Um, what it basically means is I, I struggle with low mood and anxiety a lot of the time, but also I can be incredibly creative some of the time. I have a chronic illness. I have an autoimmune condition. It means I'm very tired. I have joint pain. It's also recently shut down my stomach, although I have drugs now, so I can actually eat the dinner tonight. But obviously that kind of is a burden as well. I also have caring responsibilities that I didn't have this time last year that I've just kind of fallen into literally almost. Um, and when I was talking to the doctors recently of, about why my NHS appointment had been pushed back again and again and again, they asked me if I was working. And I said, yes, and they seemed surprised. They said, actually, we, most people that have your condition don't work. Um, and I thought, well, actually, I'm really lucky because I run a charity. I have control over my working conditions. And I, I have the privilege of being open about it because I work in a very progressive organization. Um, you know, I couldn't do this if I didn't have some power. Um, 
you know, I have a team who supports me. Uh, they don't really have much option, obviously, because I'm, I'm the exec director. But, you know, we have a culture that's very supportive of that, that's supportive of people being fully human. And so at times when I might kick myself for being late or, or being off work or whatever, I can also pride myself in modeling that kind of fully human behavior. But if, if I had a nine to five job where I had to be present from nine to five, if I didn't have work from home policies, if I didn't have people around me who understood that, I would not be in work. Like I could not hold down a shift job at McDonald's. And so I recognize that, you know, I, while yes, it's a struggle, I'm incredibly privileged to be in this space. And that actually, that also imposes on me a bit of a duty to see what I can do to change working conditions. It makes me really angry that we don't design jobs to fit around people's lives. I'm not a parent, but I know enough of them to know that actually we cannot design jobs that actually work around that. And instead, people have to either drop out or very often go sideways. I think that's really wrong because I think if we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion, it shouldn't just be about including people in the existing system. It should actually be about how do we adapt the system to support everyone, whatever's going on in their lives. And while I feel really lucky that I have that control within my job now, that's no comfort to the people that don't. And so my second question, I guess, is, is twofold. It's what invisible barriers are we still guilty of putting up? Because I'm sure I put them up as, as well. But also, what can we do to create workplaces that are genuinely designed for humans in, in all their circumstances? And I guess the third thing is kind of a logical follow-on from both of those, but on a, on a bigger scale, and that's around the visibility of social enterprise. Um, it's nice to be celebrated, and it's nice to feel special and good. Like, that's it's great to combine the two. Um, but sometimes I think feeling special can also be a barrier to creating wider change. And, and by that, I mean, how big is our ambition? Do we still want to be special in 50 years time? Or do we actually want to be just business as usual and not celebrate it because it's just common sense that all businesses know they can serve a wider purpose and profit at the same time? Do we always want to be the outliers or do we want to create purpose as the new normal? And are we here to just demonstrate what good looks like or are we here to make good the kind of hallmark for everything? And I guess my argument, and it would be because of, of the work that I do, is that we, we should be able to do both. Like, we should be a visible demonstration that you can put purpose first and still operate a viable business. But I also think we have a responsibility, especially when we have kind of the privilege of having some visibility, to use our voice to challenge the wider structures that are stopping this happening and to support other entrepreneurs to actually build businesses that do the same. So I guess my final question is, what can we as a network who are starting to get to know each other do to support each other, to actually maximize our impact, to take what we do mainstream, to not be the special ones, to not be the visible ones, to just be normal? Anna closed off her provocation, and Pioneer's Post met some of the other guests around the table to hear their thoughts. Hi, I'm Antonia, Antonia Orr from Coalition for Efficiency, and also She Leads Change. If you could take one thing back from the evening with you, um, what do you think that might be? 
the point around, you know, not just the power of the existing Wise 100, but how can we turn around to other women and make space for them? Um, and kind of, it's not just about forging ahead, it's about turning around and like giving out your hand and pulling the next woman to come up and join you um, and someone who might not have that, be in that position of power or have that voice to do so um, so I think um, I was really pleased to see that and spoken about um, a lot this evening. Hi I'm Bernie Morgan from RBS uh, trustee board social community and community capital plus I'm on Homeless Link uh, trustee board of their social investment fund. I think I agree with a lot of what's been said and I think it's really helpful to have that discussion. I think two things, one is I don't suppose it's been an easy journey for anybody sitting in this room and I don't want to make the assumption that it's been easy for us and it's difficult for other people. Uh, I strongly suspect it's been difficult for all of us. But I also think I love the idea of creating a, an infrastructure of um, work that's acknowledges the humanity of people but actually to try and run a successful business like that for some particular businesses is hugely challenging to make a profit um, which you want to do because you want to be there and, and do that um, and it's much much more difficult than uh, anybody would think I've tried it and I can say I've got the bruises to show for it and I don't have any of the answers so it's really difficult. I'm Karen Stenning from Prime Advocates Women of Impact and I'm also setting up Investor, helping to empower and encourage women to be investors. Um, I think this year has been a really remarkable year for um, women and we've really come a long way in this, this year and with Me Too movement and lots of things that have been going on. But how do we go going forward because we're, I'm in fear of alienating men and I really... <laughs> my sort of challenge is how do we bring men also to the table and help I remember going earlier in the year to around International Women's Day I went to so many events during that time and then I went to Eventbrite um, events soon after that said all these events they're just full of women and where were the men because we can't do, have this conversation without everyone in the room um, Sandra from the House of St Barnabas. Um, that goes to the heart of the, the trust question. So the, the Me Too movement, um, uh, militant feminism, uh, trust at work, vulnerability, it's actually about trusting what people are going to do with the information and actually creating an, an enemy or an other of anyone else isn't actually going to help the conversation. So there's a big piece of, of work around trust. Um, and I don't think that happens overnight, but in the, in the work piece in particular, um, the trust element uh, only goes so far because then it's down to productivity and profitability because actually without money there is no good work so actually that, that balancing act is always going to be there I think that's the biggest challenge I think that small businesses face is I've got the greatest ideas to do the great amount of work if the money doesn't come in there is no good work done and I have this challenge with an awful lot of my younger staff who are so values and purpose driven they join the organisation and they are calling me over the coals about some of the decisions we're making and saying, but you're not living your values. It's like, no, we're being pragmatists because if there was no money in the bank, you're not going to get paid next month. So it's a constant battle. And I do think there's a danger um, around social enterprise good, charity good, business bad, that I think is a really dangerous, it's not even a dichotomy, it's also a try something. Mm. Um, so, but, but, I, but I think that, again, making it other, I, 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 I will fly the banner of let's just make it business for good and that is the way forward because actually I think there's a massive lever there that we aren't pulling and I don't, but again, 
it seems to be that people are assuming that all the uh, good thing is coming from social enterprise, but actually I'm copying more from business than I am from charities or social enterprise in good practice. And I think that is probably worth noting. Hi, I'm Meg. I'm the founder of Fat Macy's. Hi, I'm Gita. I'm head of engagement at Big Society Capital. And if there's one thing that you might take away from this evening, what would it be? And in the conversation about bringing the men in is super important in the discussion, but I think you can then drown out the voices who maybe are a bit nervous about being in a space anyway, let alone if there's then sort of more dominant forces at, at play. Um, so I think it's, it's really good to celebrate, even if it feels sort of a bit of an odd space when you, you know, you have one man sitting <laughs> there and, you know, it's, it's a very different space to maybe what you see in your work life, but it's, I think it's really valuable to have that. Um, I think it's the need to bring women who aren't in this room into the into the conversation and actually and into um, into the into the limelight into making them more visible. So I think it's great that this network has been set up. Um, there's some fantastic women on on the list, um, but I'm just conscious that there's a lot of other people out there who are doing some great stuff, and we want to see more of them come into the space. The other, th the other thing that came across for me was a, um, was the thought that how can we um, connect more women across sectors? So it's great that there's been a network set up for women in social enterprise and social investment um, by yourselves and RBS. Um, but every entrepreneur that that I meet and hear from, and some of the conversation tonight has been around how to be recognised. Um, just as a business and as a really strong business and how to gain the skills that are going to allow you to perform well as a business so I think there's something about um, how to connect in, into other sectors and women working in other sectors to help this network grow. You've been listening to the Pioneers Post podcast. If you liked this one continue following our Y series and other social enterprise stories on www.pioneerspost.com.